everyone, I'm Carly Vigna and this is episode 307 of At Percussion. With me today, as usual, Ben Charles is here. Hey, Ben. Hey, Carly, how are you? Good, good, good. You got a nice festive um, Happy Halloween orange shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, happy Thanksgiving if you're listening to this. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little funny. <laughs> and uh, Caleb Pickering's also here. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how's it going? Good. How's Missouri treating you? It's good. Uh, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, it's just, uh, it's cold. They get actual winter here. So I got to do some wardrobe updates here in a couple of weeks. Still, uh, I see your wardrobe still doesn't, imp- imp- excuse me, include a diploma frame. I'm, st- I'm, still, work- I'm still working on it. I'm, yeah, moved in and everything's half in boxes, still half out. Hey, I'm, I'm in the same boat. And if you think Missouri has real winter, for me, I'm like, Virginia has real winter and I got to update my wardrobe, so... We're in the same boat, I suppose. Um, well, as as I mentioned, today's Halloween, our recording date, and that's why Casey's out. He's probably trick-or-treating with Robin right now. Um, and our release date is actually November 25th, which is Thanksgiving Day. So happy Thanksgiving if you happen to be listening to our podcast that day. What happened in music history on November 25th, Ben? Well, another holiday thing. In 1949, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer first appeared on the music charts. <laughs> that was the, the okay. most notable music item, but I decided to talk about another thing today, and that's that in 19, excuse me, 1835, Andrew Carnegie was born. Andrew Carnegie, of course, the famous Scottish-American industrialist and philanthropist. He made his fortune in the steel industry in the late 19th century. He was one of the wealthiest people in American history, and he was also a generous philanthropist. He gave away about 90% of his fortune during the last 18 years of his life, which was around $350 million, or $5.2 billion, that's B, billion, uh, in today's money. His article titled The Gospel of Wealth, which was published in the North American Review, called for the rich to use their wealth to improve society. And the most notable example for us as musicians, of course, is Carnegie Hall, uh, which is located at 881 7th Avenue in New York City between 56th and 57th streets. It presents about 250 performances each season. Uh, So a brief, brief, brief history of Carnegie Hall. There was a conductor of the Oratorio Society of New York and the New York Symphony Society named Leopold Damrosch, and he had an idea for a music hall. He died in 1885. Two years later, his son, Walter Damrosch, met Andrew Carnegie in Germany when he was studying music. Uh, And he approached Carnegie about this project. Carnegie was initially uninterested in funding a music hall in Manhattan, but he changed his mind and agreed to give $2 million to the project. William Tuthill was selected as the architect for the project. He was relatively unknown at the time, but he was an amateur cellist and singer, which possibly had something to do with him getting the commission. He designed the hall in a modified Italian Renaissance style. It's three structures in an L shape, each of which contains one of the hall's performance spaces, which we'll talk about in just a second. The recital hall opened in March 1891. The oratorio hall opened in April 1891, and the music hall opened in May 1891 with a concert conducted by Walter Damrosch, who was the person that had spoken with Andrew Carnegie about creating this hall, and Tchaikovsky, which I did not know. At the opening concert, the architect, William Tuthill, uh, looked at the crowds on the top tiers and left to consult his drawings because he was unsure if the columns could actually support the weight of the crowd, (laughs) which turned out to be okay. Uh, I guess it was fine. 
Uh, and Tchaikovsky said, the auditorium was unusually impressive and grand when illuminated and filled with an audience. So the three performance spaces are Stern Auditorium, which is the large hall. It's a five-story auditorium with 2,804 seats. It was originally known as the Main Auditorium. It was renamed after the violinist Isaac Stern in 1997 to recognize his efforts in saving the hall from demolition in the 1960s. Uh, it was the home of the New York Philharmonic from 1892 until 1962 when they famously left for the Lincoln Center, and the stage is known as the Ronald Perelman Stage. Uh, the next hall is the Zankel Hall, which seats 599. It was originally known as the Recital Hall. It was renamed in gratitude to Judy and Arthur Zankel for funding a renovation of the venue. It went through several iterations, including a life as a cinema, which I found kind of interesting, but it has been a performance space since 1997. It was mostly, excuse me, most recently completely reconstructed in 2003. And last but not least, Wild Hall, or Wild Recital Hall, which seats 268. It was originally called the Chamber Music Hall. It was renamed in eight, excuse me, 1987 after Sanford Weil, a former chairman of Carnegie Hall's board. And I thought I would talk very briefly about a few historical things for us percussionists. Oh, sorry, and I meant to show pictures as I was doing all that. Uh, let me show you some pictures of those varying halls. So here is, in reverse order from what we just talked about, the Weil Recital Hall right there and then let's see here here's the um zankel hall the sort of mid-sized hall and stern auditorium the large hall and then a few percussion related events uh on may 16th 1935 claire omar musser brought his 100 piece international marimba symphony orchestra to carnegie hall uh, there's a picture of them in that hall. It was 50 women and 50 men with $100,000 worth of instruments, or about $1.5 million in today's money. And in 1940, let's see here, uh, April 29th, 1940, the Creston Marimba Concertino premiered with an all-female uh, orchestra called the Orchestrette Classique, conducted by Frederic Petridas, with Ruth Stuber as the soloist. That's them in the Carnegie Chamber Music Hall, which is now Weill Recital Hall. And let's see here, this one. Um, in... Uh, let's see here, April 7th, 1947 was the first marimba recital in Carnegie Hall by the Guatemalan marimbist Celso Hurtado, which included arrangements of Brahms, Paganini, and Liszt. Here's the program from that if you're watching on YouTube. And my last little bit of marimba history here is that Vita Chinowith premiered the Kirka Marimba Concerto, uh, which, as far as I can read into, is the first quote-unquote invited performance of a marimba player at Carnegie Hall, whatever that means. I don't know if the others just showed up with the marimba and refused to leave or what, but Vida was the first invited uh, marimba player. And I wanted to close on, there's a very famous joke uh, if you're outside of Carnegie Hall and someone says, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The answer is practice, practice, practice. So... That's uh, Today in Music History. Thank you to Andrew Carnegie for his generous contribution to the arts. Ben, that's so, that's so great. I love those old pictures. Yeah. Um, Marimba Orchestra, all of them. That's so cool. Thanks. Yeah.
Well, without further ado, I am very happy to introduce today's guest, Dale Trumbor. Dale Trumbor is a Los Angeles-based composer and writer. Her music has been praised by the New York Times for its soaring melodies and beguiling harmonies. Her, her compositions have been performed widely in the U.S. and internationally by ensembles including the Aeolians, American Contemporary Music Ensemble, Los Angeles Master Chorale, Los Angeles Children's Chorus, and many, many more. As a writer, Dale is the author of Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life, and she's written extensively about working through creative blocks and establishing a career in music. These have been published in several different um, publications, and they're all also accessible on her website, so check that out if you haven't already. Dale holds a master's of music degree in composition from the University of Southern California and also a dual degree in music composition in English from the University of Maryland, which is where I know her from. Um, and in fact, Dale and I collaborated many, many years ago on the Mio Percussion Concerto, which I think is one of those pieces where the piano reduction is like much harder than the solo part. And she just did an amazing job um, and was so wonderful to work with. So welcome to the show, Dale. It's so great to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. It's it's great to see you again. <laughs> Same to you. So I, I wanted to start talking about your book, Staying Composed. Um, there is just so much wisdom in this book, um, all, all wrapped up. What a wonderful resource for performers and for composers and I think really any kind of artists. Myself, I've found um, following your advice on several occasions since I started reading it. So I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit about how your path as a composer led you to many of these realizations about your creative work and then also to, to decide to write them down in a book. Yeah, so I, I, was, I grew up in a family of writers uh, and double majored in English, have always loved reading. Uh, so writing has always been something that's available to me, but I didn't, I didn't really know that I wanted to be writing about my creative process until I went to a residency at Aaron Copeland's house in, uh, uh, what is it, Peak, Peekskill, New York, I think, upstate New York. And I was so intimidated uh, being at this residency, thinking that Aaron Copeland had lived there for the last 20 years of his life. I was listening to his music and um, they had all of his, not his original scores, but his, you know copies of all of his music. Every piece uh, is in the little library there. And I was just so overwhelmed in that particular experience. Uh, and then I ultimately found my way through to finishing the music I set out to write while I was there. I did get that music composed, but I had to work through sort of every possible anxiety about, you know, imposter syndrome, like, why am I here? Why did they choose? I think I was 25 at the time. Like, there are so many other composers who could be here. The music I'm writing is garbage compared to all of this brilliant music by Copeland. Um, that all bubbled to the surface. And after that residency, I wrote my first essay about music and about insecurity and about anxiety that was published on New Music Box, which is a really wonderful resource for not only composers, but just anyone in music wanting to know what's happening, uh, just what issues we're facing in contemporary music making. So fast forward a few years from that, I think that was 2013 or so that I started writing um, about anxiety and self-doubt in music. And I found myself really thinking about what, what resources I lacked as a beginning composer. And then as a composer graduating um, from undergrad, from grad school, facing a career, sort of vaguely knowing the career that I wanted, I think as most of us do, and, and 
maybe I don't know if any of you would like to speak about this too, but like the, the thoughts that you have when you're a recent graduate and you think, okay, I could get a teaching position. I could go get even more degrees. Um, I could try and forge a path freelancing. I, I was just thinking about this huge lack of information there is, I think for making those choices and then for dealing with all of the the mental angst that comes up when we're thinking about this. And especially when we're looking at our, our peers and our colleagues who sometimes are doing better than us, you know, I, I should put better in, in quotes, right? Um, they're on a different path and that doesn't look like our path at all sometimes. And just weighing, like, what are we supposed to be doing and how are we supposed to be feeling about it? Uh, I, I really was thinking if I, went, if I could go back in time and give myself just sort of a reassuring, like, it's gonna be okay. Um, here's why it's gonna be okay. If you just knew all of this earlier, it would feel a lot more okay. Um, that was sort of the overall attitude behind this book. And that led to me thinking really, uh, that's sort of a vague way of thinking about it, right? But thinking really concretely, what are the exact strategies I use on a daily basis just to get through my day without feeling the painful anxiety or, um, you know, jealous comparison to other people, all of that. That's where, that's really where the, uh, the seed for this book came from. Well, it's so great. I, I wish I could go back in time and 10 or 15 years ago, I had read your book because even reading it now, there's just so much, so much that's helpful. And I agree. I mean, the time that I, around when I was finishing school, or even in transition between degrees, it, it honestly it felt like a crisis time. Like you don't know what's coming up next. You don't know, you know, you're always thinking, how am I doing compared to my peers? And like you said, there's always somebody maybe ahead of where you are or on a different path that you want to be on. Or, you know, you, you see people um, honestly deciding to go into different lines of work because maybe it's more viable and that kind of thing. And it, it can feel unsettling. So um, it's wonderful that you've put this together. And I, I highly recommend it to any of our listeners. It's just it's just great. Yeah, I was just going to follow up with what Carly said. I hope no one minds me sharing, but all three of us co-hosts here finished a DMA, had some sort of job that was not uh, what a, I don't know, viable career job, I guess you could say a job in music, but not something that had a career ladder moving forward in that very position. So yeah, it's like very common, like all three of us dealt with this crisis, like, you know, I applied to undergrad, got in, went to school, that was cool, applied to masters, got in, you know, and it's like this, like, I'm applying and getting in, and it's great, then you finish DMA, and all right, what, what, what now? Where, where do I sign up for my gig? <laughs> well, Stan Compose is, Dale, it's so honest about the really tough parts of your own creative work, um, and that's one of the things that I love about it in a world where sometimes it seems like we only see like the very best of everybody's life, even personal life and professional life. How did it feel to write this book and admit that composing and your creative process is not always like wonderful and amazing and smooth sailing? Yeah, I think it, it could have been something really scary, except that I'd been testing the waters with that bigger, it's a really big conversation, right? To talk about mental health, to talk about not knowing what you're supposed to do or, or feeling that imposter syndrome or any of these things, like it can feel really overwhelming and scary to bring them up with other people. But um, I found that if you, again, test the waters in smaller ways, like if you, if you have a colleague who's also a friend 
who understands the specific struggles that you're going through that might be unique to your, to your instrument, to being a musician, um, but where that feels like a safe space where you can be open and honest about your own struggles. So often that's met with the other person saying, oh my gosh, I go through that all the time. Here's how I deal with it. Or, or even saying, I don't know how to deal with it. How do you deal with it? And then you, you work together towards a solution uh, or a practice of, of maybe not, uh, I think when we talk about all of this, especially mental health issues, there isn't one band-aid that we can slap on a problem. It's a, it is a series of practices, just like with music itself, right? We don't, we, don't we don't play a piece once and get it in excellent performance shape and then expect that we could come back to it 10 years later and just get up and perform it with, without looking at it again. Like we would have to work back up to that state, um, even if it's, it's quicker to get back to it because we did know it so well. Um, that's really how these practices feel for me. So again, test, testing the waters with those conversations and then with writing smaller articles too about all of these things um, and, and seeing that those actually got a really positive response. It wasn't people saying, you know, how dare you admit that you're feeling anxious about, about this um, or, oh, like you're the only composer to ever have felt like your music was absolute trash. No, it was the exact opposite. It's so often, and I still... The book's been out for two years, I think, and, and people are still, uh, so often I get emails saying, oh, like this is so relevant to my life and where I am right now. Uh, and that's, that's really helpful for me to hear. And that makes me feel even freer in sharing those kind of vulnerable subjects in the future. I do think these are really universal feelings. Um, I don't know. I, I almost think labeling something as imposter syndrome makes it feel like that's a specific subset of people who feel that, but I, I don't know. I don't believe that there's anybody out there that's never thought like, oh, is this good enough? Or do I deserve the opportunities that I have? Um, and I'm sure you've gotten a ton of positive feedback about it. Um, I mean, it's, it's like, it's humanizing to understand like someone, you know, someone like you that I, I would think, oh, she's doing so great. Look at all these accolades. Like she's got a wonderful career that she's built for herself. And then to, to know that, no, you have, good days and more challenging days, just like everybody else. Um, I always think, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but the classic quote from uh, one of my former teachers and mentors, Keith Aleo, he would always say, every challenge is a gift. Um, and I've come back to that so many times through my life. And the, the one that I think of is, uh, I had like this elbow injury several years ago. And I was at the time, like really afraid to, even ask certain people like, what could I do for this? Like, I just felt embarrassed. Like, oh, does it mean I have bad technique? No, it really just means I kind of overdid it in a particular type of practicing. And, um, you know, and having gone through that and trying to find um, relief and a, a healthier practice schedule and all of that helps me with students who need help or, or, you know, colleagues too. So it's the same way that all of these things that you've gone through with things that I'm sure when you're at the Copeland residency, you weren't thinking, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to work through these challenging feelings that I'm having, but it's, it's such a gift that now you've shared with so many people. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I was there thinking, I'm so grateful to be here. Like, what an opportunity. This is amazing. And at the same time, feeling very complex emotions. And I think it is important to acknowledge, too, that we very often have those two feelings at once, where we are grateful, we are happy to be here, we, we get a gig that we're really excited about, and then we're still really nervous about it. And those those feelings can exist at the same time. That's so normal. It's It's not a binary. It's not 
one or the other. It's completely, completely ordinary. Right. That that means you really care when you have when you're eliciting both of those extreme responses, I suppose, anxiety and, you know, self-doubt and that kind of feeling with also excitement and yeah. Well, one of my favorite sections in your book, Dale, is the one that's titled, What Are Your Creative Blocks Telling You? And I thought it was so, um, I've never read, read anything before where, that laid it out like that. I just thought it was so insightful. Uh, I think for a long time, I've not been consciously aware of why I would procrastinate or avoid certain tasks or types of work, and I still catch myself doing it sometimes. So I'm wondering, would you tell us about your relationship with procrastination and what advice you have for young musicians to procrastinate better, which is something you talk about in the book? Yeah, so I think there's really, it's it's a twofold strategy. And um, the, the really big aspect of this is recognizing when you're procrastinating and trying to link, I guess, trying to figure out why, like, what does that procrastination have in common with other times that you're procrastinating? And for me, it's always, um, I can always trace it back to, uh, some some resistance towards the piece as a whole or sometimes it's it's something way more simple it's just like i need to go take a break i need to let myself do something else and not force myself to go sit down and muscle through composing honestly so much of this book is about not muscling through and i think that has to do too with what i was saying earlier about being, um, especially being in the earlier stages of your career. So hopefully the book is for everyone. If you're in the early stages of your career, you can get this messaging that's like, you have to power through, you have to say yes to everything. You have to do it all. And there's some truth in that, but, there, but there's also a lot of value in recognizing that if you are procrastinating doing something and it's the same kind of work over and over and over again, maybe you should be saying no to that work. Like if you actually genuinely do not like what you're doing to the point where you will put it off indefinitely as many times as you can. I know for me, like that, just recognizing that there's certain, even certain pieces that I like writing more than others and turning down commissions, which feels very frightening um, when you're making a full-time living from composing and from com commissions, like it feels weird to say no to anything, but uh, really I can trace back again, like taking a look at the different kinds of procrastination, like, do I just need to get up and, and go eat a snack because I'm really like, or take a nap because I'm tired or I'm hungry. Like that's a very small issue. But if, if you keep taking on this one kind of work and you're, you're making excuse, any excuse at all to avoid doing that work, that might be an underlying bigger issue that is really worth taking a look at. And maybe maybe you want to structure your life so that you don't take on that work or just approach that work in a different way. Kind of tagged onto that. I had uh, some years ago, I can't remember how long back, a therapist told me something real similar about procrastinating when it was, it's like, why, why are you procrastinating? Because my issue isn't working. It's like, and you, you get into this in your book about leaning in. I think it's leaning into it about just taking, just starting, like I'm gonna work for five minutes. And that's my thing. Once I start, I'm fine. It's like going to the gym. It's like, uh, I gotta get dressed. I gotta drive there. I gotta do all this stuff. Like, it seems like such a big buildup that they talked about, yeah, why, why are you, why is it so hard to take the first step? 
And I feel like for me and probably for some other people, it was like, a, I don't know, maybe an insecurity about like, oh, I'm going to work on my, my composition stuff. So, you know, I'm starting the new project and this is like the new baby that's going to be put out into the world here in a couple of months. So every little thing I do now is building to that, that big moment of judgment from other people. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really liked your part about leaning into it, about, um, I just pulled up just a sample of yours, but it was talking about, I literally just did this two hours ago. Uh, I'll just wash three dishes right now um, because I, I was kind of out of plates. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, you wash three dishes and then it's like, okay, well, I'm here, I'm going. And then you finish, you finish the job. And um, yeah, I feel like for me, that has always been my biggest struggle is just starting or the, or the blank score, things like that. I'll also, I'll set up little like traps for myself in a, in a happy way. Like what you were saying with the dishes where I'll, I'll make a list of all the easy things I could do in my work. And I talk about that in the book too, but uh, like I write a lot of choral music, but even when it's not choral music, they're like an example with choral music would be uh, putting in the lyrics if I haven't put in the lyrics yet. But with any kind of music, there's always like doing the dynamics. I will, I will put that off forever, but it's so mindless. I can also do that at any point. I can go in and put in, put in all these markings and fuss with formatting and make sure that the page turns make sense. You know, there's, there's all these little tiny details that are so mindless that I can use them as a little trick. Like if I just start working on that, then eventually, usually that turns back into composing because I'm either, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm bored, but I have Sibelius open now and I'm, I'm in the file, I'm digging around in the notes and then I just start composing and it, then I'm working and I've overcome my procrastination that way. It also reminds me of a, a few weeks ago when we had Naoko Takata on and she talked about like behavioral changes and it's like, okay, so why don't you put your snare drum in front of the refrigerator? So like you have to practice snare drum in order to open the refrigerator. <laughs> so yeah, I think that it's funny like hearing Caleb talk about the dish thing. There's like a lot of those like minor little behavioral tweak things that can, can really affect our behavior. Yeah, a while back, gosh, I can't remember how long ago, but we, we were talking about um, a woman who would sleep in her running clothes, so it was easier to get up and go running, just like less resistance to doing what you need to do. But with, I guess, responding to what Caleb said, Caleb, you mentioned judgment, like thinking about, oh, this next project is going to be, you know, like people are going to make a judgment about it, good or bad or indifferent. Um, and I think that's what gets me a lot is the big projects that I put off are the ones that I really care about and I really want to be perfect, like maybe proposals or, or you know, anything that's going to be online, recordings, video, audio, that, that kind of thing. Dale, does that resonate with you too of, of one of the barriers being kind of feeling like it has to be perfect and then so you put it off? It doesn't, it doesn't do us any good, but we put it off like just with these feelings of like, well, I don't know if it'll be perfect enough. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the bigger the project, the more intimidating it is. Maybe for all of us, I don't know if that's universal, but that's absolutely true for me too. And it's been really helpful to think about um, the writer Anne Lamott's concept of shitty first drafts. I, hopefully I can say sh shitty here. <laughs> shitty <Yeah>. first drafts. <laughs> um, We're good. <laughs> but, um, but just her, her concept. And again, this is Anne Lamott is a writer. She's talking about writing words, but it applies to everything. Um, and I use this all the time, especially with something like a grant proposal where I know, 
ultimately I'm going to want it to be as perfect as it possibly can be in hopes of getting tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. And that's like, that's really scary. And the idea that your, your words and your portfolio are directly responsible for you getting or not getting this funding, like that's intimidating. But if I just, if I just start with just putting down literally anything on the paper, I know personally, I'm a good editor. I enjoy editing much more than I enjoy writing. And that's true, even of composing too, I'll do the same thing where I need to get, if I can just get some notes down on, on the paper, then I can come back and make them better the next day. So one thing I talk about in the book too, is this idea of what's good and, and bad when we're thinking about art, when we're talking about um, any sort of creative act, it's really helpful for me to only ask that question, is this good uh, in certain parts of my process? And I can, I should not, and I cannot ask it at the very beginning stages, because if I am asking whether what I'm writing is any good while I'm also trying to write a shitty first draft, the whole point of the first draft for, for me is just to get anything down and come back and make it better. So I, I can't think about good. I can't think about what anyone else is going to think about it. I just have to put my head down and spit out anything, <laughs> literally anything onto the page, words or notes, um, knowing that I can definitely go back and refine that later. And that helps so much with that the intimidation factor. There's this quote that I love from Martha Graham, um, and it's it's the one that starts, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of this time, this expression is unique. She's basically talking about like, don't block the creative, the creative ideas and creativity that you have within you. And she says later, it is your business to keep it keep it yours clearly and directly to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. Um, it is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. Um, and I, I always like that. In fact, I have a copy of this on my office door right now. Well, Dale, Staying Composed was published in 2019, and I'm sure that it was a timely read for many people during, during the pandemic, as it was for me, especially the chapter that's titled Stalling Out, with a section titled, When It Feels Like Nothing's Happening, Use That Time Wisely. And you write about so many ways that we can further our artistic careers and stay artistically engaged and motivated through slow times. So I'm wondering, is there anything that you think you might have added to the book before publishing if you had happened to write it during or after the pandemic? Um, maybe in other words, what are some of the lessons that you've learned about the creative process since the pandemic? Yeah, honestly, I mean, it, this last going on two years now, this last year and a half has been really hard for me as it has for a lot of or all musicians, I think. And there's a lot already in staying composed about, about moving through things with as much ease and grace as possible, about forgiving yourself when you're not reaching your maximum capable capability, productivity, like that doesn't always have to be the goal. I know for me during the pandemic, a lot of the goal was just get through a day and exercise a little bit, maybe like go for a walk, drink some water, take my vitamins, like just go, go easy on myself, especially when uh, I think this was a, well, 
obviously this was a really unique case where normally if if my work was drying up you know i would i would circle back to all the people that i know people that i've worked with before friend colleagues um, that's a really big point in this book right is just if you just keep seeking out people that you really respect as human beings um, and that you also respect as musicians those are i think some of the best collaborators so usually if i if i didn't have anything else to do i'd ask myself what could um what could i work on with these people what can i do for myself like i'm a i'm a pianist um i could be writing a piece for myself to play but in the pandemic it felt like even that was insurmountable some days i, I think partially because my mental health like so many other musicians i know we were just to kind of in a dark dark place mentally. So on those days when it just when just doing anything feels insurmountable to come back to the most basic human needs and to just think of yourself. Um, I, I, I've written another essay about this in regards to grief too. And I do think that um, during the pandemic, it was almost like I was grieving my career, like the loss of certain, like just the loss of my career. It just vanished overnight for a year, basically. Um, but in those times to, to treat yourself like a, an animal, almost, like what does this body need? I need water, I need food, I need rest, I need some exercise. Maybe it's really gentle. Like I just need to be gentle with myself and just take care of myself and make sure that I am healthy and, and in a functional good place when we emerge from that. So maybe that's not the best or most helpful. Um, it's certainly it, like that feels like a weird answer to put in a book that's about um, about making a living as a musician in a way, right? But I really think that is the truest answer is just to take care of yourself on the days where you feel like you can't do anything else. Go back to those most basic human functions. Yeah, I think one thing for probably a whole lot of people, the realization was like we um, we spend so much of our lives, usually well beyond 40 hours a week on our careers as musicians. And then all of a sudden we didn't have that same urgency or, you know, any anywhere near the same amount of work, if any, um, for a while. And so we're forced to think of ourselves as a person, as a human being, not as a musician or a worker or a teacher, you know, all these all these things that keep us going in the in the daily grind. And I think that's so important. Pandemic aside, so much of the undertones of your book is maintaining positivity, I think, a positive relationship with the creative process and not, you know, beating yourself up if you didn't get as much done as you thought might have been possible, or, you know, like trying to avoid some of the just the negative thoughts and feelings that we have that hold us back. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I touch on that in the book too. Like there is a whole chapter on just if, you know, when you're, when you get to that point where you're just feeling so anxious or so like, it's okay to take a step back and to tell people that you have to cancel something. Like I, I canceled, uh, I had a, a like absurd moment of anxiety in my life in 2019 because I had way overscheduled myself. I was releasing this book and getting married and had like three pieces due and was supposed to travel to all these different performances all in the same summer, which is nuts. Like I would not do that now. And I have learned my lesson there. But at the time, 
I had a moment where I, like, I had to acknowledge that I could not possibly do all of these things. And I had to take a step back and I had to put my mental health above my career. And that is scary. That is, if you've never done that before, it's terrifying. But the lesson learned there was that I, I really do need to schedule in breaks for myself. I need to not just charge ahead and say yes to everything. I need to take time to recharge between each gig, between and between each life event, like maybe if you're getting married, don't also try and release a book the month before. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Lesson for next time. <laughs> yeah, Caleb. Yeah, I've been thinking about this recently because uh, I, I took a big break from writing for like the past six or seven months um, just after the pandemic and stuff. I worked through that, but then I just kind of went on pause for a while while I moved jobs and states and uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot the past like month about uh, like how I would define my like if I just met someone at a restaurant or a bar or something, I didn't describe them that I was a or didn't describe myself as a musician first. Like what other things would I tell this person? Like and I kind of I've asked a lot of people about it. That's kind of like yeah, sometimes in the music world and I guess well all the arts. Yeah, you're the art part is kind of you're defining personality traits sometimes which I guess can be good and bad but um, it just reminded me when both when Dale and Carly were talking about yeah that just now in the pandemic but I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that about uh, I don't know I don't know how to phrase it as <laughs> uh yeah managing who you are outside of your defining career goals no, I think that's so important. I think I mean I, I come back to that question all the time and that's actually part of what led me to start writing again uh, is just asking, well, asking a really basic question of just where, like, where do I feel like my creative needs are unmet? And also where are my needs unmet just in, in my life? Like what more do I want to be doing in my life? Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's a hobby. Maybe I know for me, it, it meant uh, going back to writing poetry and starting to write short stories, which I think is pretty much a hobby, except I'm so type A that I, that I have trouble doing anything as a hobby. I'm like, how do I submit to a hundred literary magazines and see if I can, like, I'm not trying to make a living also as a poet now, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm it's just the way my brain works to be like, what else can I do with this now? But it, it really took asking that question of like, where do I feel like I'm, I just could like I could be doing more beyond my musician identity. Um, I love writing and I love writing for fun. And maybe that means writing a short story that no one will ever read, but that brings me such joy. And I think does help fill the creative well. Uh, it, it makes me feel creatively fulfilled in the same way that composing a piece for a commission um, for a professional ensemble does. Like I, I feel, creatively fulfilled either way. And that's really helpful. Just if, especially during the pandemic, actually, I, I ended up writing a lot for fun, just to feed myself uh, creatively in a way beyond that identity that I rely on as like who I am, I am a composer. Um, if you haven't asked yourself that question of like, where do I feel like my creative needs are unmet or just where, like, what am I not doing? Again, as a human person, what am I not doing that I want to try? Maybe I'll be bad at it. Maybe I want to 
take archery lessons or something like it could be something really, really obscure and strange, but I think we owe it to ourselves to reach out beyond our, our core identities as like that we cling to as like, I'm a, a successful professional musician. You can do that and be so much more. Um, or maybe you're just a really good friend or a really good parent or a really, you know, like that's, that has equal important value as well. I was going to say, has anyone here watched the, uh, the one man special called in and of itself? It's no. on, it's on Hulu. Uh, and it's, it's, one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen, if not single-handedly the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. Uh, but the it's a it's sort of like a thought-provoking thing, sort of pre presented as a magic show. Um, but it's by this guy named Derek Delgado, and uh, he has this interesting thing. He says, "We ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up, but we ask adults, what do you want? Or excuse me, what do you do?" And he said, what we're really asking is, what have you become? And as part of the show, he has everyone pick a card. And it's like, you know, you, you select your identity and you can pick that I am a plumber or a musician. But then there's also things like idiot, <laughs> mother, like things that are just like, you know, oh, this is this is what I've become. So anyway, um, I, didn't, I wasn't really going anywhere with that. But uh, I wanted it's on Hulu. Recommend uh, checking out in and of itself. Go ahead. I did see that. I did see that. And it was great. It was so great. I loved it. You were absolutely right that everyone should watch it. That's so cool. I haven't seen it, but I thought it was funny that Ben uh, said plumber, musician, and then put idiot and mother in the same. Uh, <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not in any way equivalent. I won't tell your mom. <laughs> Happy belated birthday, mom. Her birthday was last night. Well, um, Dale, in an article titled Don't Expect Congrats that was published in Cantate magazine in the fall of 2019, you write about frequently being asked to compose on the subject of womanhood or to discuss your experiences as a female composer. And judging by your writing, I think that you and I share some similarly complicated feelings on this issue where I'm always happy to see greater diversity amongst percussionists and composers, but um, it's always a little annoying to me um, when somebody says like, it's so great to see that you're a girl and a percussionist or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like, I just want to, you know, I'd rather you say, Hey, you know, I love your playing. You played great rather than it has to be tied to my gender. Um, but anyway, would you share with us some of your thoughts on this? And I'm wondering if anything has changed since you wrote this two years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot has changed in the way that the United States, at least as a country is dealing with identity. Um, and gender and the way that we, uh, well, there's there's been a positive trend in recognizing that at least within, well, classical music and art as a whole, there's a lot of putting whiteness and maleness on a pedestal, I think, uh, based on who we look at from history, right? And there's an, there's an attempt now to reckon with that and to ask better questions about like how do we how do we gauge this idea of a masterpiece or a genius and if it's only if we've only only ever recognized that in people who happen to be white and male that's doesn't really pave the path for um changing that in the contemporary world 
all of which is to say that I think the, at least when it comes to like, for me speaking as, um, as a, a woman who is white, right? I, that, that is my identity. I am often asked still to write about women's issues, quote unquote, women's, women's things. Um, I think less of that's happening now. I know other composers uh, who are not white are being asked to write pieces about their identity, but ne not necessarily in a way that they get to choose. And I think this is the issue here. If you ask me to write a piece and I come to you with a text by an author who identifies as female, who wants to write about her experience as a woman, and I wanna set that, and I am a woman, and, and we write a piece that's about being a woman. Like that's, that's what I wanna do. I'm choosing to do it because I wanna do it. But if the only opportunities I'm getting are ones that ask me to speak to a very narrow slice of, of what it means to be a woman, I'm like, I'm just not into that <laughs> personally. Um, and again, I know I, I can't speak on this as again, as someone who is white, I can't speak on what it feels like at all to be not white and asked to do that for your racial identity. But from, again, my understanding is that also feels pretty terrible. Like that doesn't feel great to be asked only to write about your identity in a very narrow little box of like, we, we, we wanna hear your voice, but only if you talk about this. I just, I'm not, again, I'm not into that. So what I would love to see more of personally is composers and anyone in, uh, conductors, um, anyone in any sort of capacity to choose who they're collaborating with and who they're hiring, to make sure they're casting a wide net, to make sure they're looking, um, if everyone that comes to mind is homogenous, like a, a homogenous identity, maybe to recognize that and to cast a wider net and just make sure they're considering a wider variety of people. Um, and then if you are commissioning a composer uh, or maybe if a conductor is being, or a performer is being asked to program a concert to let that person have agency in what they're, in what they're choosing to create. I think, again, I'm speaking from my limited perspective and experience here, but that just feels so much better than saying, someone coming to me and saying, oh, we're doing a concert specifically about, um, oh, here's an example. Okay, so I, like, I've been programmed on a concert about motherhood, despite the fact that I do not have children. And right now I'm not planning to have children <laughs> just because I'm a woman. They were like, oh, cool. Here's a concert about mothers. And I'm like, this is, what, did you, why, <laughs> why, just why? I don't get it. Um, yeah. I think people could be more thoughtful in the way that they approach all of it. Yeah, I, I think it's um it's easy for you know people of underrepresented groups in the arts to start to feel like like we're doing a, a much better job as a whole, I think, with um, giving a voice and a platform to people from underrepresented groups, but it it the danger is, I think, making people feel like that is their value. Like, oh, your place at the table is because you're a black percussionist or a woman composer or any other, you know, less represented group in, in the music world. It's tricky. I, I have to say, I appreciate so much of the effort that's gone on, even when it's things 
um, like Dale, what you said, like being asked to write about motherhood when you're not a mother and don't necessarily expect to be in the future. Um, you know, I, I appreciate at least that we're thinking women should write about motherhood and not programming, you know, several male composers about to, to discuss a topic that, you know, maybe would be less appropriate or, or even the things um, programming like entirely, you know, works by women composers for an entire program. Um, which I think I think you wrote in this article like that's not a that's not really a theme, right? That's yeah. that's a character like that's I guess one characterization of you know something that all these pieces have in common, but it's not a thoughtful presentation on a you know on like a, a work of art like a concert program could be. Yeah, it almost feels like laziness in a way, or or to be like here's a group of South Asian composers. Like here they are, I rounded them up and I put them on a program for you. And you're like, okay, but what, what does the music like? When I come to a concert, I want to know what the music, like, why did you, why did you put these pieces on this program in this particular order? How do the pieces speak to each other? And you can do all of that. You can do all of that. You can, you can have a program of pieces that all happen to be written by women, or maybe it's a mix. Maybe there's a few pieces. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm kind of anti the all like the lady composer concert, right? I'm, I'm yeah. kind of over it. And like I said, but but to talk about, if you're gonna do that, to do it and then talk about the music, talk about why you love the music, why these two pieces are next to each other on the program, how they speak to each other, what you might hear in common uh, or, or, the, or the extreme differences in these pieces and you love them because they're so, because they provide such a contrast to each other in one specific way. I think if, again, people in a position of programming power, if they could bring us the music with the same attention and care that they do with any other piece by any other composer when they're dealing with underrepresented groups, I just think that would be such an improvement on, again, things like the, the Lady Composer concert. Yeah, yeah, well agreed. I, I appreciate your thoughts on it. Um, Dale, you've written several articles and essays there available on your website that relate to career development. Um, here's just a, a few of the titles. Composing the Cold Email, Five Ways to Improve Your Bio, which is great. Um, How to Get Your First Commission, Let's Break the Money, Talk Taboo, and many, many more that are just super helpful for especially young professionals, but I think um, people really at any, any stage in their in their uh, in their career i'm wondering what you think are some of the most important non-musical skills that young musicians today should be developing especially these things we don't always talk about in school yeah i mean i think honestly i wish i had known as a younger composer that i could go to my composition teacher and ask these questions. I think I sat with them in a bubble and the way that composition lessons in particular are, are approached. And again, maybe maybe this is something you can all tell me about, um, about your experience in lessons, how that was treated. But I think so much of taking lessons in a university setting is you come in and you're trying to make the music the best that it can be. And that's great, that's wonderful. But for the teacher, to maybe even just be available to answer an email with one specific question if you're say writing your bio and you have literally no idea as a little a little 18 year old how to craft a good bio i think it would be so helpful and i know 
I used to teach piano, not in a university setting, but just to, to mostly kids. Um, but I tried to make myself available for questions about just anything, like anything that came up that was remotely tangentially related to the piano and to music and to, whether it was something about being anxious about performing or I just think if we if we created a, just a little more space that we could have we could yes aim for virtuosity if that is the goal or just aim for the music to be the best it can possibly be for that for each individual student and just make a little space for for letting the student feel that they can ask those questions and that you will, if you are a, a mentor figure, if you're in that position of power, again, this comes back to that, like if you're in a position of power with, with programming or with your conducting or your teaching, letting people know they can come to you with questions, period. Like it doesn't have to be this, this imbalance of, of, of power. Uh, yeah. I guess yeah. that's, that's kind of a more general approach to that <laughs> than, than saying like, you should know that like one thing in the bio article, I say, don't ever start with uh, like Dale started taking piano lessons when she was seven. Like so many bios say that and it's so boring. It's so boring. It's like you and thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people, you all started lessons when you were, maybe you were five, maybe you were six, maybe you were seven. Like no one cares, but. I guess I think I think what I see what I hear from you and so much of your writings and your your book and everything is like making information more accessible than maybe it was for previous generations. And I mean, I had amazing teachers through all three of my degrees who I'm sure if I sat down and said, like, hey, can you read my bio? Can we go over this um, or, you know, any any number of these things that we have to do as musicians? Um, I'm sure they would have done it. But I, I remember feeling maybe there's a little bit of a barrier or you think they only want to hear you play in your lesson. They don't want to check out your website and tell you all the, you know, all the things that you should change. Um, or actually, to be honest, Ben, do you remember um, studio class with Matt Strauss when he made us all have CVs? Yes, and we all hated it, but he was right. <laughs> we all hated it. And then when we first we were in we we're DMAs when we first needed a CV for anything, like there it is. And the hardest thing about that is is starting it. But I I know I had to I had to I think I was applying for a grant maybe in grad school or right out of grad school and they needed a CV and I didn't even know what it was. Like I had to Google, I think I, I Googled composer CV or something. And finally I found a composer who had listed, like there was the PDF was there and I just copied hers exactly. But it took, like no one had even mentioned the words CV to me before. I knew what a resume was, but I didn't know this extensive list. And then it's a little different for composers. And yeah, if there was just, if I'd even known that there was someone I could ask about that, I think that would have been a great help. My, uh, my favorite CV story is that when I first had to make one, um, I asked my former teacher, William Mersh, hey, can I, can I see your CV? You know, just for formatting, and he sent it to me. Uh, and his CV, I, was, I think it was like 50 pages long. Because <laughs> um, he's had a career since you know, the 70s. Um, and I learned from that that he played on Saturday Night Live. But I mean, it was like so, so far beyond. Uh, obviously, he's much further in his career than than... I am, or I definitely, than I was at the time, especially, um, 
that yeah, it's also it's challenging with something like a CV to have a generic answer of what should be on your CV because if you are a recent uh, high school graduate, you probably don't have a CV, but if you did, what would a high school graduate CV look like versus someone like, say, Carly that uh, has a career in this and has all of her degrees done and probably isn't listing that she played in all region band in 11th grade on her CV. Or maybe she is. I don't know. That's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember his CV being like, I like I heard rumors about it, I think, from grad students when I was an undergrad and like, oh, it's this scary thing where you have to list everything you've ever done. Um, and, you know, that already feels when you're when you're 20, that feels like overwhelming. And then later you get to a point you have to make it. And um, yeah, if it, if it hadn't been for Matt Strauss making us put it together, probably first year of our DMA, I don't know, I would have been in a panic later having to do it. Dale, I wanted to ask you, what are your current projects and what's coming up for you that you're looking forward to? Yeah, so I have a bunch of choral pieces, which, as I said before, is the norm for me. Um, it's probably like 80% choral music, 20% non-choral music. Um, I have a, I just finished a 25-minute 20, piece for voice and guitar that I'm really excited about because I love... Uh, the challenge of writing for instruments that I'm not quite as familiar with. I've written for guitar once, I think before this, for the same guitarist and to have the chance to expand on that in a bigger piece is really exciting. Um, and yeah, there are a few pieces. It's funny, the, the pandemic has sort of not only shifted everything, but also uh, made dreaming about bigger projects possible for me in a lovely way. And that's one way that I did take advantage of the downtime of the pandemic where I was just, I tried to go back to, um, again, those questions of, of like, what am I in control over and who do I really wanna work with in the future? And so one thing I'm really excited about is a 20, somewhere between 20 and 30 minute long uh, ballet with, the, uh, with a ballet company in Modesto, California. And I'll be playing the piano part as well, which I'm a little intimidated about because I'm I'm much more of a composer than I am a performer. Um, though in college I used to accompany all the time, like Carly said at the at the start of the episode. But um, but I'll be recording that on an album as well, and so just getting excited about various there are other other album projects in the works uh, with people that I've loved collaborating with in the past, and I think that's always the best question to come back to again when you're feeling uncertain about well, like what your next creative steps are, who do I already know that I love working with and how could I possibly collaborate with them again? Well, I look forward to hearing about those things. I'm, I'm wondering if you're writing a, a part for yourself to play, do you find it's difficult? Um, I always think if I'm writing something like, I don't want, like there's resistance, I don't want to do something that's super hard because that'll be annoying for me later. You know, do, do you run into those feelings? Yeah, I have, I have a uh, um, conductor, choral conductor friend who I guess his mentor used to always say all the time, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. And so now I think that to myself, um, just about composing in general, but especially if I have to play the piece myself, I'm thinking I'm going to have to practice a lot more to get this, however many measures of tricky music there are. Um, and I'll definitely think like, can I put them again? Like, can I, if I'm going to practice that hard? Can I make that happen again later in the piece? Like, how do I make it worth myself learning all of that and, uh, or, or, or make it fun 
too. Like it's hard, but I'm going to enjoy the challenge of having to practice this over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. Um, I had a question about your let's talk about money article more or less. I find that's a really hard one. Um, not so much when you get to maybe the four of us, us's level, our levels, but the hardest one for me is undergrads. And it's not just composition, but you know, I feel like there's this, I, I can't figure out which side of the fence I'm on where it's, all right, we, they need either that uh, drumline judging teching gig slash they need that commission for free, but I also want them to be, they don't need to be working for free at the same time. So do you have any thoughts on that between um, balancing young students between, you know, where is the line between doing it for free for exposure, which is always rough um, versus, you know, charging a fee? Yeah, I had, um, I was lucky in that I reached out with a bunch of these very practical questions uh, to another composer that I, I really liked her music, um, Abby Patinas. And I, I was a junior in college at the time. And I, I asked her these questions and she sent back this really thoughtful email. It was really long and it was so helpful. And I try to do that now whenever anyone sends me that same sort of question. But one of her answers that really stuck with me was always make sure that you're getting something in return, even if it's not monetary. So make sure that you're getting a really good recording that you can use on your website uh, to promote yourself and that work. Um, this maybe applies more for, for composers, but uh, but just make sure that it does, it feels like a, an exchange of, of something, even if there's no money attached. And then what, something that I tell uh, composers who are really unsure about commissioning fees, because this is especially true for undergrads, when someone says like, what do you charge? And maybe you've been writing a lot of pieces for friends for free, and then you do, they perform the piece on their recital and you get a really good recording and like that feels like a nice exchange. Um, but I say you can start by asking for a certain amount, uh, like maybe outside of that, outside of that setting, like maybe you've graduated and now you need, um, like you do want and need to be making money. You can always start with something that feels comfortable to you. Maybe it's like 50 or hundred dollars. And then every time someone asks you again, you raise it. So maybe next time you say 250 and this, I mean, maybe you start at 250, maybe next time you say 500, next time you, and you make sure that you're I, like, I, for me, the sweet spot even now is just feeling a tiny bit uncomfortable in a way where I feel like I'm getting away with something if the person says yes to that amount, <laughs> where, but I don't feel so wildly uncomfortable that I'm, I'm saying, you know, this five minute choral piece is gonna cost $20,000. Like maybe someday I'll get there. But right now, if I were to say that, I, I would be like, huh, that's not like, I, can't, I couldn't even say it out loud. Um, Cause that just feels astronomical still to me, even though I charge a lot of money for my commissions. But yeah, I feel like even starting with undergrad saying like, what would make you feel like you were almost like you were getting away with something if someone said yes to this number. And also you don't wanna be so wildly uncomfortable throwing out a number that you can't even say it with a straight face. Like it just makes you feel ah, inside. Um, those two, that balance 
for me, like that's just carried me through my entire life of quoting rates. I think that's really smart. Um, I would say as performers, we don't have to set our rates as often. And every time that I do, it still makes me a little uncomfortable because you have to think about, um, you know, who's hiring you? Is it a really big performing arts organization or is it a well-established group or is it, you know, your friend's friend from somewhere else, you know, like a friend of a friend who is putting something together on a shoestring budget and they're really trying to get something great off, you know, um, off to a good start. So it's, it's tricky, but I, I laughed, Dale, when you said charge a number that you just feel a little bit uncomfortable with because that's the number I've, I've been there and that's the number that will probably make you feel like I'm getting paid, like I'm real pleased with what I'm getting paid here. Um, I was going to add one other thing. If you just think about the total, like the total cost of things, chances are like, unless you are very well established, like your flight somewhere is going to be more expensive than your artist fee. Like if you're getting a $400 flight, you, you can probably ask for more than a hundred dollars. Like I think if you're traveling like that, that's a, that's a reasonable thing to ask. Obviously if you're doing something local, especially if you're a less experienced person, it's, it's, that's more difficult. But for me, that's been one thing recently. Like I start thinking about like, well, the flight costs this much and the hotel, costs, like by the time it's all said and done, I'm only making like 10% of what they're actually paying. So. I always, for commissions, I always put flight and hotel separate. They are completely separate now in every contract from the, from the uh, commissioning fee. But I know uh, gigs are different. Performance, performance gigs are different from that. Maybe. It certainly can be. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, um, yeah, it, it totally depends. There's such a wide range, but more often we're, we're told, um, there's this much money to play, you know, either a recital or a chamber concert or more often an orchestral gig, this is what it is per service. And then you decide, yep, sounds great. Or no, I can't do it. Or, you know, it's not quite enough to make it, make it worthwhile. I'll say one more thing about that too, about this, the issue of just how much to charge and when and where are you in your career. Um, one thing that's been working for me during the pandemic is thinking of things on a sliding scale, especially I've been using this for Zoom rehearsals, but sometimes I use it for uh, for commissions as well, where if, uh, if a community chorus is coming to me and they want a Zoom rehearsal of a piece of mine and their budget is 50, I mean, $50 feels a little low to me now, but, but if I really wanted to work with them, maybe I've worked with them before. I know they've done so much of my music. I might say yes to that. Um, but if it's a professional group coming to me, I might charge $250. Like I, and I, I say now when people come to me, I will ask um, how, like, I'll say, this is my fee, but I'm willing to work on a sliding scale. Uh, if that's what works for you. And I don't say that as much with commissions, but I will say that if someone, like I recently wrote um, a piece for just a, an individual commissioning a piece for her daughter. And I quoted a very different rate than I would for an organization or a college coming. Like I have, I have my set rate, but then I also give myself permission. If I just, if I really, really wanna do the piece and the person doesn't have the budget, I don't want to beat myself up about like, I have to be making a certain amount. Um, I'm giving myself the grace to say yes to just an, like an, an ordinary person making an ordinary salary, uh, not a big university that can pay thousands and thousands of dollars. 
Right. Absolutely. That's very, that's very smart. And you have to make sure that you just that you feel good with the work that you're doing and with what you're getting in return. I guess that's the bottom line. All right. Well, Dale, thank you so much for joining us. It's so wonderful to hear um, first to see you and speak with you and also to hear about all the work that you've been doing. Congratulations on so many successes. Thanks so much again. Yeah, this has been really fun for me too. So thanks so much again for having me. Yeah, thank you.